I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Joel Kim Booster. As I was like sucking that man off, I was like, you should be president. (laughs) That and more. But before that, boy, do we have three big new shows scheduled that I want to let you all know about. Three Texas dates coming up in January. On January 18th, we're in Austin, Texas. The theme that night is The Real Deal. On January 19th, it's Houston. The theme is Unbelievable. And on January 20th, we are back in Dallas, Texas. The theme that night is Adventure. We are taking pitches for all three shows. So if you live anywhere near Austin, Houston, or Dallas, remember, Austin's the 18th, Houston's the 19th, Dallas is the 20th. Pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. The submissions page includes a video which tells you how to pitch us, tells you how to get our attention with a pitch that'll really knock us out. So go to risk-show.com slash submissions and Texas folks, come out and see us in Austin on the 18th, Houston on the 19th, Dallas on the 20th. Also, this holiday season, Sock Club is delivering the perfect gift experience. Quality, American-made socks are sent straight to your loved one's door featuring different designs and a personal note every month. This is the gift that keeps giving all year long. I love, I adore my Sock Club socks. They're so nifty. They're so cute. They're so comfortable. Super high quality socks. Go to sockclub.com, get 15% off using the discount code RISK at the checkout. Give Sock Club this holiday season. Also, <laughs> some woman wrote to me on Twitter that any episode of Risk wherein I sing the stamps.com ad, she refuses to listen to any of the stories on that episode. She refuses to listen to any episode of Risk. That includes singing of the stamps.com. And so just for that lady this week, 
Here it is unsung. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. It'll be packed with so many people. You want to scream. So use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid the hassle of going to the post office. You can do everything you do at the post office, but right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter or package. The instant you need it, then the mailman picks it up. So it's easy and convenient. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code, R-I-S-K, for this special offer. It's a four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter Risk. Now, here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Panda Panda behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode of Risk Raw. (laughs) Raw is how a lot of us are feeling at the end of 2016. And you know what? We're going to have our holiday episodes coming up soon. So I figured... Let's have one last episode of the year where we just hear completely unfiltered sex and crazy violence and God only knows what the fuck else. I myself am back from my big retreat. I went off on a 12-day retreat. Day one is arriving. Day 12 is leaving. But the 10 days in between... Total silence, no phones, no computers, no speech, no uh, pens or paper or books. Just 10 hours a day of meditation. You get up at 4 in the morning every morning. Eventually, I want to do a story about it because it really, really, really was something. But I'll tell you, goddamn, real life just comes right back at you just immediately inundates you just immediately just swamps your mind with shit to fear and shit to crave (laughs) but I, i did for at least 10 days really really feel like i made a connection to a part of myself that knows just knows, doesn't believe, but knows that peace is powerful, that compassion can be a force to be reckoned with, and that we might be tempted to let ourselves get carried off in swirling currents of fear, but that we can, we have the ability at any time to step up out of that and own our power 
of being compassionate. There's ways, by the way, we've been talking a little bit at the beginning of some of these episodes of ways to get active. Put your love in action. Come at the world with that compassion. Uh, A fan of the show, his name is Jordan Wild, as he wrote in that he has started an organization called Serve306.org. You join up with Serve306.org, you pledge to volunteer 306 hours in your community over the next four years to volunteer for the most vulnerable folks in the community. So thanks so much to Risk fan Jordan Wildish for sending that idea in. There's a great article in The Atlantic with more ideas along this line. It's called A Cure for Post-Election Malaise, or malaise, whatever how you pronounce that. It's by Eric Liu. Civic participation offers a way out of your 2016 doldrums, he says, and he's got various ideas. Look that article up. It's in The Atlantic. Meanwhile, here at Risk, you know the drill. We are always looking for stories from people of color. If you know someone who you think might have a good story to share with us, we're at risk-show.com slash submissions. Also, anyone who's just felt marginalized due to poverty, racism, abuse of some sort, lack of resources, immigrants, people who have dealt with trauma, people who have uh, uh, faced imprisonment or domestic abuse, anything like that encourage people you know to get in touch with us we can help them share their stories now in just a bit we are going to hear from one of our all-time favorites joel kim booster shared a really fun and really explicit story at a recent risk live show at the bell house our next show at the bell house is wednesday december 14th and then our next show at the bootleg in los angeles is december 17th Uh, But first, we're going to feature a story by one of our favorites, Miss Lily B. Holy shit, Lily (laughs) started the show off when we were last in Chicago, Illinois. We were just in Chicago for their podcast festival there. That was a huge success. And here is Lily B now at that show with a story we call Cougar. Cubs just won the World Series. I am here to talk about Cubs. I am a cougar. Yes, you heard that correctly. Cougar. C-O-U-G-A-R. I love me some 25 to 30 years young, slightly dumb, and full of cum, bear cub subs. Yes. 2016 has been the year that I have been openly and unapologetically sharing this somewhat hidden truth about myself. Because like the World Series Cubs, I need me a lineup. I need me a lineup that'll have me celebrating in the streets and acting like climbing street poles like some crazy transplant from Iowa. I need me that lineup. And it's been going really good. I've mastered what, I feel like I have mastered what I now am calling my cougardom. 
It wasn't always like this. I mean, I knew that I was always attracted to younger men because with the exception of my son's father, they've all been younger. My son's father's only five months older than me. But all the rest, all my long-term relationships and my flings have been younger. And I guess it was when I was 30 that I realized that I like them young, like half my age plus seven. That's the rule for me now, right? So t at 30, 23 was my number. Right now it's 25, because anything below that is weird to my son, who's 20. So he's just like, nah. But, but like I said, this has been the year where I'm like, this is me, and I love it, and I have. I've loved every fucking minute of it. I've loved the good shit, oh, the good shit. And the bullshit even. Yes, the bullshit, which is to say that this cougarin ain't without its bullshit. Two years ago, around this time, I almost married one. I had him sitting in a fucking theater just like this, stage left or to my left, just in awe of me. I met him right after my son went away to college. Patrick, oh my God. So I'd known him for some time, but when my son went away to college, y'all, I lost it. Because you have to understand, 36, and your son is gone, and you are done, and you are getting in shape, and you are in this place in your life where everything is just perfect. My career is perfect. My social life is amazing. I'm doing storytelling. I'm, I have a platform where I can give back to the community. Shit was right. So when Patrick came into my life, he caught me at an upswing on this pendulum of life that I was loving. And there's nothing that he could have done or said to me that would have had me doubt me. And so when he started Facebook flirting with me, I bit and I Facebook flirted back. And before you know it, we were meeting up at a show just to hang out, because that's what the young ones like to say, hang out, they like to hang out. And so I said, okay. We went to this show, we were hanging out at this show, and then afterwards, because young dudes are broke, yo. Um, I was, <laughs> you just have to just assume that shit and then find out later that you're right or that you're wrong. Either way, just assume they're broke. And I just figured, Honestly, I'm not trying to sit in a bar with this dude right now. I'm not trying to sit in a bar with you and just hear your bullshit. Because they don't talk about shit either, 27-year-olds. So I'm like, all right, Patrick, you know what I want to do? I want to go to the 7-Eleven. I want to get us a slushy and then fill that slushy with Fireball because that's what the Facebook flirting was about, was me having never tried Fireball and I love cinnamon. So I was like, we can go get these sloppy slushies, fill them with Fireball, and then walk down the street with liquor in our slushies. Y'all, life hack if y'all ain't doing that shit. <laughs> and when you do something like that, when you do something like that with a broke little cub, they think it's amazing. He was just like, oh my God, girl, you are so damn cool. You don't want to go to a bar. You just want to walk down the street and drink. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Let's do this. And so we're walking down Belmont to go to the harbor. And as we're walking, again, my head ain't where he thinks it might be at. I'm not trying to wife this dude. I'm not trying to, like, demean more. My, I'm not looking for Ashton. I'm just looking 
to just have a little fun. My son just went away to college, shit. So I'm walking with him and we're talking and he's saying things, he's telling me stories. And if you wanna get this period, yeah, tell me some stories. Tell me some deep fucking shit. And that's what he was doing. He was telling me all about his crazy ass family and his like heroin addicted dad and like the woman that he married in Hawaii and it didn't work out. And I'm just like, look at this guy just opening his heart and soul. And y'all, I thought it was sexy. I'm sorry. I was like, you are just too much as I drank my little fucking slushy. And we got to the lake and we're sitting at the fucking lake and he just keeps on and now he's asking me about me and oh my gosh, he's everything I tell him from like me getting pregnant at 17 to how I ended up doing what I'm doing, which is storytelling and nanny and all that. He just was like, like a little kid meeting his hero. His face was just in mine. This dude looked like Ryan fucking Gosling, y'all, with like like a bear Ryan Gosling, though. Not like that skinny dude on T, but like just built, just arms and chest. Oh, I loved it. And he started letting me know that he was a little submissive. And right, and that's when I was like, fuck this slushy. And I just started making out with him. We were just making out. And in the middle of us making out, or I guess like me getting moist, because he knew I was getting there, he stops in the middle. And he's like, look, I can't do this because um, I currently live with my ex and we're trying to get that situation out the way. And y'all, I was like, what? He's so honest. Like, it's so... (laughs) Again, I'm not trying to wife him. So to me, that honesty was hot. And so I was like, well, I get that. But you could still come to my house. We ain't got to go to your fucking place. And he was... And he was like, no, I, won't. I wouldn't feel right about it. So I was like, all right, whatever. Called me an Uber, took my ass home. And we didn't fuck that night. But two nights later, <laughs> he called my fucking phone and was just like, I can't stop thinking about you I, ever, ever since that date and us drinking those slushies and just talking. I just can't stop thinking about you. I, I'd like to come over. And I'm like, yep. And so I called this up. I'm like, yeah, I ordered him an Uber. Come your ass here so I can track it on my phone. <laughs> and when he got there, y'all, forget about it, right? Like, forget about it. He was so about me. Like, it was not even, like, he didn't even bust a nut that night. I'm so happy he did, because they, look, they love to say they go all night. But as a woman who works, I ain't trying to hear that shit. I got responsibilities in the morning. So, like, just hurry the fuck up, right? And so... And he did, like he was all about that. He was like, you gotta get up in the morning. I'm like, yes I do. And he was like, all right, well, I I, I go along, but I'll just worry about you. And he did, he did everything. And then he showed, like, y'all, because this is risk and I only say this on risk on that night he said he was into something and he didn't know how I was going to take it but he says to me can I go down on you and I was like yeah but that's not new he's like no and because he's like an improv dude he fake gave me a blowjob like he pretended I had a dick y'all and he fake went down and got hard on it and I was turned the fuck on because I because I already think I got balls like a motherfucker. So like a dick, I was like, yeah, suck that dick, suck it. And it was hot. And I was like, oh, I'm keeping this one. I'm keeping them, keeping them. 
And I was so into it. Like, he was sweet as fuck. Like, he would bring me lunch to my job the next day. And so I thought nothing of it, you guys. When the fourth day, I'm, like, in my bed sleeping. And I hear my phone just blowing up. Like, ding. Like, the messenger ding. And my text message ding. And it's just going crazy. And I look. And I see congratulations over and over and over. And I'm like, what the fuck? So I hit the phone and I'm looking and I open up my Facebook to see that Patrick Hickey is engaged to Lily B. Like on Facebook. And but I'm in this place in my life where I got my shit under control. And so I call him and I'm like, what the fuck is this? What are you what's going on? And he spins me the story of a man who met a woman. Man, I just, there's this man who met a woman, and he had no idea that's what he needed in his life, and she is the one, and I fucking fell for that shit. I was like, oh yeah, you want to be engaged to me? Let's do this. So I accepted the engagement on Facebook, (laughs) and we were engaged happily fucking happily we became that fucking couple that annoying cakey ass couple on facebook with the pictures and the sunday diner dates and the fucking pictures of us drinking a malt from the same two different straws bullshit people hated us and i didn't give a fuck because i was getting it y'all i was getting he was fucking me in closets pretending the apocalypse was outside and i was loving it i was loving this shit and that's why I didn't give a fuck. I didn't care what my friends thought. And you know what? I'd have known people. I know people who have met and after three days got married. And I've known people who've known each other 20 years or are miserable. So in my head, I was like, one of two ways, right? One of two ways. He ain't going to take shit from me. It's not like he's going to get me kicked out of my house or fired from my fucking job or get me hooked on drugs. So at this point, let's roll, baby. So I'm like, we engaged. And we for a month and a half, we are happily fucking engaged. But... Again, I didn't spend two fucking years getting this shit right. Mind, body, spirit was right. So as much fun as I was having being called like mommy sometimes, no joke, and like as much fun as I was having whooping him and and pegging him and all that wonderful stuff, um, I still had to be real and be like, all right, so we engaged. We need a date. And we have to plan. And with young guys, you can't just give them all the shit. Like, you can't just be like, what about this wife? What about this apartment? What about this ex you got living with you? What about your crazy-ass family that I'm not going to want to have a problem with? Didn't you say they were racist? Like, I couldn't. You couldn't just say all of that at once. So you got to kind of sprinkle it in here and there after, like, a blowjob or something like that. Just like, you called that lawyer yet about that divorce you need to get? Um, That's how you do it. But sometimes the magnitude of the shit, no matter how little and how, how uh, you know, strategic you are with like planting your little information, it still is too much. And it was too much for him. Because about a month and a half later, now, what, 20, 38 days, 40 days into us being happily engaged, he stands me up. He like, I lose my wallet, he's supposed to come pick me up. I call him, he doesn't answer. As soon as I leave that bar, I know that he's up to no good. I know it. 
I've been around long enough. I know something's not right. We don't go from this to this. So I confront him about it the next day. And I'm like, you fucking Rachel? And he's like, no. And I'm like, all right, you said no. Remember that. And the whole week, I just give him that mom look. (laughs) And by Sunday, at our weekly diner date, he can't take it. From Wednesday to Sunday, he just can't take the guilt. And he finally says, yeah, man, I slept with Rachel, which is the ex he lives with. And I'm like, I knew it. I fucking knew it. And so I tell him, like, so what now? Is this your way of self-sabotaging this because it got too fucking real? And he said, maybe. And I'm like, so what is this? And he's like, I love you, Lily. Like, I love you. And I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And, and so I ask him if he wants to work it out. And he says that he does. And so we give it from that point to maybe four days later. Because after four days, I can't do it, y'all. I can't. I just don't trust him. And the way he cheated on me was petty as fuck. Especially because he knew I didn't want this to begin with. So I just couldn't in my heart trust myself to get over this. Not right away, at least. And I didn't want to live like that. Not when there's like a million other Ryan Gosling motherfuckers out there I could easily fucking pull. (laughs) So I just said, we need to drop this. But I'd stay your friend. And he says, cool. I'm cool with that. And I'm like, great. And I changed my status on Facebook. And then... I'm in my house a week later, Saturday of the next week, actually. And I don't know what in me was like, just, just piss on that test. Just go piss on that test. Because my periods are irregular, but I know my body, again, two years of making sure this shit is right, and I know my body didn't feel right. And sure enough, I'm in my bathroom, and those two little fucking lines show up, and I am like, Ugh. Ugh. Fuck. Because I had gotten rid of him. I didn't have to call him. But now I got to fucking call him and tell him, look, I'm pregnant. And when I tell him, he's not shocked. In fact, he's really fucking happy. And I tell him, like, you got to know, my son's 18 years old. I'm not going back. I'm not having this baby. I made my decision like, nope, I'm not having this baby. I don't want it with you. I don't want it with your crazy situation that you're dealing with. This is not what I want to bring a child into. Look, I've already had a son. His dad is amazing. You are nothing like that man. And he started to get really angry. And this motherfucker got so angry that he threatened to sue me (laughs) if I got rid of this baby which made me and my girlfriends just laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. Like this motherfucker said, what? Yes, girl, that he's gonna sue me. What? Is he fucking crazy? Yes, girl, that's why I don't wanna have this baby with him. But we go back and forth, back and forth. And when he was sitting in that audience around this time two years ago, he had come to talk to me about this baby. I get off stage and he tells me how captivating and beautiful I am and how, what a great mom I'm going to be if I choose to keep it. And that's when I tell him that I already made the appointment 
to get rid of it. And he loses it, walks out of Hamburger Mary's angry. And I was like, whatever. I get home, I go on with my day, I go on with my work week, and during this week, I'm getting blown up, my message, because my appointment's the following week, I'm about to have this done, get this out the way, continue on with my life, and he blows me up and blows me up, and I am feeling like stressed the fuck out, I'm tired, because that's what pregnancy does, it makes you tired, and on top of that, like, I'm, I'm a nanny, so I'm watching babies, so I'm already, like, with the emotional stress of, like, oh, this is a cute baby, maybe I could be a mom, but fuck, not with that dude, so, like, no, so I'm going through all this, like, mental and emotional kind of stress because I've made my decision but here's this outside force just making me rethink it and doubt myself and that's what he did really well was just make me doubt my decisions and who I was and two days before my appointment he calls me from Milwaukee he had run away to Milwaukee because that's what young guys do, y'all. They throw tantrums out this fucking world. Like, it's not like a five-year-old tantrum. It's a 27-year-old tantrum where it's like, I'm gonna get on a megabus and go to fucking Milwaukee and, and, and threaten to kill myself in hopes that you'll keep this baby. And I was like, stop. Like, fucking stop. I already told you what I decided. Like, I don't want this fucking baby. I don't care if it's gonna change your fucking life. I don't want it. Get out of my face with this shit and all that stress. I'm, I leave work and I'm in the Uber and my stomach is just cramping and I'm like, oh, this, I need an antacid. This motherfucker got me just feeling like, ugh. I get out of the Uber and my stomach is just in pain, like, like menstrual cramps, but to the extreme. And I'm like, fuck. And I go use the bathroom and I miscarry. Like I just, baby and it feels funny it's like a clot like if you're ever on your period it's like a blood clot but really really big and it just like plops out into the toilet and I turn around and there it is and I look at what I'm guessing is a baby or a fetus and I snap a picture and I send it to his ass like we're done like this is over yes cause I'm that bitch y'all I'm that bitch right there like, that's our baby. Leave me the fuck alone. And he comes by two weeks later to see if we could be friends. <laughs> yes, y'all, yes, the nerve. And I think about it, and I say, you know what? We did have this experience together, and no matter what, you're always going to be a part of my life, or at least a character in the story of my life. So fine. But this don't mean we're going to kick it and we're going to be like best friends. But after like two days of us attempting to be friends, I realized that he is still that guy, the guy that will lie over petty shit and who doesn't want to really fix or own his shit. And anyone I have in my circle is on their shit. And if they're not on their shit, at least they own their shit. And so I knew he wasn't the person that I needed in my circle. And so I cut it off. And I haven't seen him since. Friends of mine see him all the time and they, they report back to me at how miserable he looks, but those are my friends. Again, my circle is tight. And I guess, like I said, this is not without its learning, right? Like I've learned a lot 
I own this cougardom because that didn't stop me. Like, he did not fucking stop me. He's only made me a little wiser. And now when I see red flags, I call them shits out and I fix them. And if they can't be fixed, you got to go. Half my age plus seven is my rule. Stone cold rule. If you're 22, I'm sorry. Unless you like struggling like refugee over here taking care of your own family, I can't go. I'm sorry, I can't go. <laughs> but I'm wiser and I'm learning. And if any of y'all are 25 to 30, y'all could play in these majors and get out those minors. Thank you. Remember when a cougar was only a wild, snarling beast? It's restless. It's civilized. It's challenging. It's serene. Cougar. With the rich feel of glove-soft vinyl on deeply padded bucket seats. Bold, classic grill. Cougar is like nobody else's cougar. At the sign of the cat. Ram. Thank you guys so much. Hello. Hi. I um, love public sex. And do I love to fuck in public? That's just something you should know about me. That's going to be a theme throughout tonight's story. Um, Now, before I continue, though, I do just want to address the straight men in the room because whenever I talk about the experience of being gay, particularly like the sexual experience of being gay, I hear from my straight male friends consistently like, oh, Joel, I wish I could be gay like you. Gay men are so lucky because you just fuck all the time, you know, just nonstop fucking. If I were gay, I would be having as much sex as you. And it's like, no, you wouldn't because you'd still look like that, you know? Um, and, and, and like, let me just be very clear from the onset that like, it is not that gay people are having more sex than you, it's just attractive people across the board are having a lot of sex. On either side of the aisle, it is not easier for me. One thing that I will allow, though, and I will tell you straight up, is that gay people in general may not be having more sex than you. We are certainly having sex in like more interesting places than you, you know? It's not a, a vertical thing, it's a horizontal difference, you know? Um, and public places is one of the places I feel like we have sort of owned as like a sexual home. Like a lot of you are just having sex at home, which seems very boring to me. But um, <laughs> here we are. Uh, cruising is not by any means like a new phenomenon. Cruising has probably been around as long as gay men have. You know, my gay ancestors um, created cruising not for fun, but out of necessity, you know, because it was for a very long time, like, illegal to be gay, so you just had to, you know, spot someone from across the park and do what people do, you know? Um, But now, like any good hipster millennial, I sort of just love vintage things, and (laughs) I want to bring it back, you know? Like... Some people in Brooklyn like to churn their own butter or spin their own yarn. I like to meet a man at Ikea and fuck him in the handicap stall. You know, like that, that is just like my artisanal entry into, you know, this throwback that we've all found ourselves here in 2016. Um, 
And it's sad to me, you know, because I feel like cruising, like public cruising is sort of a dying art. I mean, it's sad on one hand because it's like so fun and it's like good, I guess, on the other hand, because it just means that we're coming forward. You know, we have all these apps now that where we can find each other and have like dirty, dirty animal sex and that's great. Um, I guess like technological advances. And we've even created like actual public spaces that were supposed to have sex, like gay bathhouses are a thing that I visit in almost every city that I go to nowadays. And like for those of you who aren't aware, a gay bathhouse is sort of like a combo of a spa slash gym slash haunted house. You know, like it's just a lot going on in those spaces, you know, like it does have like all the accoutrements of a spa. It has a small gym, which pro tip to everybody who travels for work a lot, the gyms there are so much better than the hotel gym. Go, work out. You know, it's like eight bucks for a locker. Why not? And then, of course, there's like a maze area with glory holes everywhere and little like cubby holes where there are TVs playing porn for you to jerk off. I mean, the last one that I went to wasn't even playing porn. It was playing an episode of Chopped. And I had (laughs) the lovely experience of just standing with two other naked men watching an episode of Chopped, talking shit about Bobby Flay and not doing a single sexual thing. You know, like, these spaces are, like, they're sexual spaces, but they're so nice, too. They're, like, almost therapeutic, and I highly recommend you visit them if you're in another city. But the thing about those spaces is that it sort of removed all of the dimensions of, like, danger and possible embarrassment from, you know, public sex, which is, like, half the fun, (laughs) you know? Like, without the danger there, I mean, it just seems a little bit more boring, and you lose the factor of one of my favorite parts about having sex in places where I'm not supposed to is disrupting a straight space, you know? Like, it is, like, sort of... I mean, listen, I get it. I'm not exactly, like, throwing the first brick every time I blow some guy in a steam room. But, you know, like... In 2016, you know, there's not a lot of radical things you can still do to disrupt, like, heteronormativity, and I find, you know public sex to be one of those small little things that is maybe more for me and less for the community as a whole, but, um, you know, sometimes I donate to a lot of charities, too, Uh, you know, just so you're all aware I'm not a complete monster. Um, So one of my favorite places in my youth to have sex with men in public was the David Barton Gym in Chicago, Illinois. I have a woo, were you a member? Did I maybe see you there? I don't know. Um, It was just as dark there. Now, the David Barton Gyms, for those of you who live in a city without one or maybe have never had the pleasure of going into one, they're like a very high-end gym, like very sleek, very like gray, dark tones. The lighting inside the gym is insane. It makes anybody look insanely hot. Like, it's wild. Like, let me be the first to admit that hot is subjective. It is a construct. But in terms of what we understand to be actually hot, like the David Barton lighting will make you look that way. So just step in to one, and it is like four rich people. I should point that out. The only reason I was allowed in the David Barton gym is because I had a corporate membership from the time I was working at Groupon, um, which I'm sure they're so happy to be connected to this story now. Uh, <laughs> but 
Here they are. I can't help that. But like this place is for rich people in such an obvious way. Like everyone there, lighting or not, like is gorgeous and, and immaculate. And it's like, why are you even at this gym? And you could like see every like troll like me who worked at Groupon and snuck their way in. You know, like even under the lighting, it was very clear who worked at Groupon and who didn't. Because it's like not for us. It's for rich people. And like half the time, I was like, what am I even paying my small fee for? Like where is all this money going to equipment? To to like nicer towels, no, like on Thursdays there would be a DJ spinning in the freeways, you know, like that's what you were paying $160 a month for to feel bad about yourself, but to hear a Kesha remix at the same time, you know, very important uh, when you're working out. But my favorite part of the David Barton, of course, was the steam room. Any high-end gym worth picking up a man at has the steam room. Um, and let me tell you, I've talked a lot about straight spaces, but like straight people, gay men own steam rooms, okay? They're ours. Um, no matter where they may be, they could be in a fucking daycare and they're still there for gay men to have sex in, okay? Uh, because, and I don't know what it is about a steam room. I think it may be just like the atmosphere. It's very hot and sweaty and everyone is naked and there's like a thin veil of like just enough plausible deniability in there, you know? Like I think it's the plausible deniability of a steam room that makes it so sexy, you know? And I really appreciate it. And the other thing about steam rooms too is just it really is the training ground for gay nonverbal communication. This is like paramount of cruising. In, in the gay community, when you're cruising, eye contact is consent. You know, um, you never need to speak a word. It's just a raise of an eyebrow, you know, or maybe a brush of a shoulder, or the way you conspicuously open your towel in the steam room. You know, any of these three things may seem innocent to you, but to me, it means come over here and suck my dick, you know? Um, it's an invitation, and that's, like, very important. And I remember this specific instance. I was in the steam room with two other gentlemen, and one of the clearest signs that somebody wants to hook up with you in a steam room is any eye contact at all. Now, I mean, there are plenty of you who are, like, go to gyms probably or have otherwise been in locker rooms. Men, we do not make eye contact in there, do we? No, it's a very uncomfortable thing. We do not want it because we know, even straight men know, if you look at someone too long, you know what it means. And this guy who's sitting sort of, so there were three of us, one on the opposite side of me, one in the middle, and then me. And the guy in the middle was just looking at both of us like a fucking, like he was watching a tennis match, just like back and forth, back and forth, lingering eye contact here, lingering eye contact here. And just like through gay telepathy, we all started to come together onto the middle plane, you know? And that's the other sort of nonverbal happening there is like, we're all sitting on the same fucking uncomfortable tile. It's not like moving closer to the person next to you is gonna make you more comfortable. All that does is show, yes, I'm willing to have sex with you here. And that's what was happening here. And we engaged in a, like a very lovely sort of threesome, the three of us, in the dark, in the steam of this steam room. And that's happening and that's normal. And then suddenly the door opens and there's a rush of cold air and in walk a group of straight men. And of course we scatter like roaches. Um, you know, like 
back to our original corners because that's what you do. You know, you're supposed to feel embarrassed. You're supposed to feel ashamed. Of course, those straight guys, like it's dark and it's steamy, but they're not blind. You know, like they know what's happening, but I feel like there is sort of like at some point, maybe in the 60s or 70s, there was like a treaty signed between gay men and straight men where they're like, we'll turn a blind eye. You know, like uh, we won't care, keep like occupying our wives and we won't tell the gym management when we catch you sucking each other off in the steam room. You know, um, that's what we need from you. And that's what we were all sort of on that level. We scattered into our own dark corners again. We let them take sort of center stage in the steam room. And they got to talk, you know, like we were silent, but they got to talk. And I just remember sitting there, like listening to their inane, like brewy conversation. They were talking about how much sodium is in chicken. Um, <laughs> and how much they missed sodium. Um, and how their trainers wouldn't let them ingest sodium sodium and I'm thinking like this is the norm like this is we are back to the status quo and then it happened there was this pause in their conversation and again suddenly all of us were silent just enjoying the steam and the man who sort of began the hookup to begin with sort of the captain of our hookup if you will um in this moment of silence he took advantage of that and he looked around and he said the incredible he said so uh you guys horny? <laughs> and and they, they just, like, immediately the energy shifted again, and they were like, oh, no. Like, they didn't give a fuck about sodium suddenly. They were just like, they could barely talk. They were just like, uh, no, no, of course not. And what happened next was amazing, BuzzFeed. It was, um... <laughs> the captain, he looked at them... And he just like completely flipped the script. He broke all the rules. He was like, then you gotta go. (laughs) And he he bullied these straight men out of the steam room without another word. These men just got up and left. And as I was like sucking that man off, I was like, you should be president. (laughs) Like, what? What power do you have? It was amazing. It was just like the sheer like shock of the rules being broken. I could not believe it. I had never been more turned on in my entire goddamn life. And so we all like, you know, finished and did our business and like went about our separate ways. But I was still like amazed at what had just happened before my very eyes. That man, he happened to be changing at a locker right very close to mine. I like tapped him on the shoulder as he was getting dressed and I was like that was incredible what you did in there, you know? Um, And he gave me this look, and it was like, oh, now I've broken the rules. Because, like, it's very understood. You don't talk to each other after, even after, no matter what you've done or where your bits have been, you know, you do not look at someone in the eye post-steam room and have a conversation with them. And suddenly the script was flipped way back. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is the world I live in, and he was sort of like, you guys remember that like old Coke commercial where the guy, the football player, throws the jersey at the Coke kid, and he catches it, and he's like, wow, that was me, because he was like, yeah, sure thing, kid, and then left the locker room. <laughs> it was like that weird like mix of the private and public moment suddenly like, coming together for me. I still remember like almost every detail to this day, because I was like, yeah, that's the world. I want to live in when we're on top. I don't know. That sounds outrageous and insane now that I'm saying it out loud. But 
it seems kind of fair in a world that we're living in now where Trump's one of his, you know, supposed Supreme Court appointees is William Pryor, who believes that homosexuality and homosexual sex should be illegal, you know? So I hope you've been paying attention to this story because it might be your life in 10 years, you know? Um, Wow, I shouldn't have gone on that tangent. I lost you all. Am I in a red state? What's happening? In conclusion, I don't have any deep or powerful lesson for you to take home with you tonight, but I do want you to seek out that man and vote for him in 2020 for president. All right, I'm Joel Kambuster. Have a great night. This is Risk. This is Black Joe Lewis and the Honey Bears with Booty City. And we just heard from Joel Kim Booster, who is the owner of a very cute booty of his own. Before that, a little uh, cougar-related madness in an interstitial put together by our own episode editor, Jeff Barr. And now, it's time for me to tell you this. A lot of folks are feeling a bit down lately. And that's why we're very interested to introduce our sponsor this week, Talkspace. If you've ever thought about going to therapy, but found it too inconvenient or too expensive or too, I don't know, you couldn't get out of the house, (laughs) then give Talkspace a try. Talkspace is the online therapy company, and they make it easy to connect with a licensed therapist. Handpicked just for you for as little as $32 a week. Using Talkspace, you can text, audio, and video message your therapist as much as you want. Your Talkspace therapist can listen to you vent about work, family, relationships, and help put you on the path to a happier life. To sign up or learn more, go to Talkspace.com risk. And as a special offer for our listeners, you can use the coupon code risk to get $30 off your first month and show your support for the podcast. Talkspace, therapy for how we live today. Now, our last story for this episode comes from our rather raucous and noisy New Orleans show that we did, uh, I don't know, a month ago. I can't keep track of anything anymore. (laughs) Anyway, we had a, a hell of a show in New Orleans, and this story, this bonkers story ended the evening dennis mon did a really wonderful job workshopping it with us and presenting it that night here he is now with a story we call shelter from the storm So, uh, the first time I saw my girlfriend, Addie Hall, in a newspaper, it was uh, shortly after Katrina. 
and uh, it was the New York Times. And the headline read, Katrina holdouts on high ground. And it was a story about how Addie and her boyfriend Zach stayed after the storm and um, how Addie would flash her tits to first responders to ensure that they <laughs> patrolled their street. And so I just imagine my friend Addie and this line of ambulances and fire trucks and cop cars and tanks going by and her whipping out old Lactatia Niplata <laughs> in exchange for bottles of whiskey and canned goods. And um, it made me happy. And there was this picture of them and she looked really happy and she had this like shit-eating grin like, look at me, bitches. <laughs> And she had these little children's glasses on her head, and the frames were shaped like stars, you know? And uh, she always wore those when she felt a certain way, and she was standing by this um, strapping young Marine that she had, like, hooked up with, and, uh, yeah, she looked happy, and they became this viral sensation because they were these, like, two young people that found love in the midst of the wreckage of Katrina, you know? And, um... You know, she looked really happy, and she was also happy because the world had been reduced to the size of what she was kind of used to, which was just surviving, you know, just getting by, making enough money to put a roof over her head, and, um, and she knew how to survive. She knew how to survive better than anyone I knew, and um, when I first met her, that's what we did together. We just, we survived. Um, I first met her, I was a short order cook in the French Quarter at this place called the CD Saloon. And it was on Burgundy Street. And at night, I would throw open the doors to the street and me and my friend, Homeless Gregory, would <laughs> decorate the door with mylar curtains and um, Mardi Gras beads and a disco ball and uh, play music. And we called it the Side Pocket. And it was my first like speakeasy. It was my first club in New Orleans, you know? And uh, one night I recognized there was this car that had been parked outside for several days. And tonight there was this person in the car, and it was this girl, and she was naked. And she was getting dressed and doing her hair and doing her makeup, and I'm watching. And she sees me, and she's like, what the fuck are you looking at, you know? And I'm like, oh, well. She, she gets out, and she, she pulls down the skin-tight wife beater that she just pulled out of, you know, the package. And she says, hi, I'm Addie Hall. And she points to her left tit, and she says, this is Niplata. And she points to her right tit, and she says, this is Lactatia. And we're very happy to meet you. And I said, my name's Dennis, and I'm very happy to meet y'all. And then, um, you know, then the next thing I know, she comes out of the bar. She's got two high lifes and two shots of Jameson, and the side pocket's pumping. It's me and homeless Gregory and Addie. And, you know, there's a couple girls on their way home from their house cleaning gigs, and I can see Bianca Del Rio across the street getting ready in her window for the night, and there's some gays going by, and there's this 40-year-old Bulgarian stripper named Stefka, and she's like, it's getting hot in here, so take off. All your clothes. And it was like Confederacy dunces come to life, you know? It was like everything I dreamt of in New Orleans was right here. And like, and I also met this new friend, and her name was Addie. And I knew she was special, and I knew she was gonna be my friend for a very long time. And sure enough, within two weeks, we moved into each other with each other. She had uh, scored a uh, squat type apartment on Orleans Avenue. And we uh, lived there, and we kind of like lived the dream. It was like we were in this movie together, you know? And then um, I remember, it didn't take long before I realized that 
although Addie and I were there and we were at the same place, you know, and we were at the same time and we were surviving together and we were doing this thing together, but the routes that got us there were very different, you know. I am, um, personally, I was like running towards something, you know. I come to New Orleans to like, to have a better life, um, a more fulfilled life, and I had dreams, and I was a writer, and I wanted to do things, you know, and um, Addie was running from something, and she was escaping, and uh, something horrible in her past, and she uh, was trying to escape demons, but no matter how far she ran or how long, the demons were always right there, and those demons were very unpredictable. Um, Life was hard with Addie, but we had a lot of good times, you know? She turned me on to the filmmaker, John Waters. And he was in town one day, and she was like, she convinced me to go to Julia Street, to some gallery, you know, across Canal, which we never ventured. And, um, <laughs> you know, we get there, and she, you know, makes her way through the wave of hipsters to John Waters, and they have this, like, moment. And he tells her, you know, she, he signs her a copy of... Uh, Catcher in the Rye. And he tells her that, you know, this is the most popular book amongst all degenerates and uh, inmates in the country, you know. And, you know, we left and she felt good and she felt special and she felt like he got her, you know. She felt like a star for a minute. And there were lots of times like that, you know. There, there are lots of times like that, but there are also a lot of times where you just didn't know where it was going to go. Like a good time could go really bad, really fast. We both had a similar sense of humor, and uh, we were pranksters. And once we, we took this old toilet, and we put it on the sidewalk on Orleans Street in the corridor where we lived, and then we put this mannequin in the toilet with her head like in the bowl with a wig and some Mardi Gras beads and a hand grenade, and then we just like sat by the stoop of the apartment, and we just watched people and like, the reaction to this, uh, this mannequin, right? And it was fucking hilarious. People were like, whoa, you know? And then you see it dawn on them, like, A, it's a mannequin. B, that's a fucking toilet on the street that she's puking in, you know? And it was all fun and games until some old man, drunk old guy, you know, he's cruising down, and he sees the mannequin. And y'all, he starts creeping up on that mannequin. And he's all like, ooh, you know? And he gets close, and as he gets down, and right before he grabs her tit, he realizes, you know, this bitch ain't real. <laughs> but not before Addie pegs him as a predator. And she's on him like white on rice. And she beats the shit out of this guy. She's kicking him, and she's cussing him. And I'm like, I'm trying to calm her down. And I said, Addie, it's just a mannequin. And she looks at me, and she says, fuck you. It's a mannequin this time, now. And um, scenes like that became more and more common with Addie, you know? I never knew what, what we were going to get into or how her reaction was going to be. But I remember, like, the times at home that we spent alone together, those were really the times that I really got to know her and love her. And um, we would be at home and uh, we'd share things. She was, a, she was a ballet dancer. She would taught me how to pirouette and, like, do twirls. And we'd do it in our, like, high-ceilinged beautiful little apartment in the French Quarter, and we'd listen to Irma Thomas, you know, and she loved Irma Thomas, and, and we really had a lot of good times. Um, I remember one night, she, uh, after way too much to drink, she says, uh, I'm a Blanche. 
I said, what? She said, anyone worth knowing is a Blanche, a Stella, or a Stanley. And I'm a Blanche, and you're a Stanley. But she said, but you're a gay Stanley. So you won't hurt me. And a little while later, she took my hand, and she, um, she put it under her left breast niplata. And she said, do you feel that? And I did, and I felt this, like, hard little like golf ball lump under her boob. She didn't say anything. And I didn't say anything. I knew she didn't want me to say anything. That she just needed someone to share this burden with. And um, so much made sense to me about Addie. It was the, the abuse and the running away and now this lump. And it made sense why she lived every day like it was her last. She always claimed, I'm never gonna live past 30. Die young, leave a pretty corpse. Die young, leave a pretty corpse. After that, uh, it wasn't very long before we got thrown out of the apartment after Addie beat a neighbor with a two by four for accidentally elbowing her in the face at a bar, you know, and it, he was drunk. And, um, and I knew it was for the best, and I moved to the Marini with um, Stefka, the Bulgarian stripper. <laughs> and Addie hopped around the French Quarter for a long time. And we remained friends, and we would visit each other and come by, and she'd come to my house, and we'd smoke each other out, and we'd drink, and we would just talk, and we'd borrow money from each other, you know. We just lived, and, but I felt like I was providing this safe space for her, like the safe place where she could come and like, let her guard down and just kind of relax. And uh, she did. And um, I remember once, I hadn't seen her for a long time, and she came by and she told me that she had shacked up with a buggy driver in the French Quarter. And she said that she had found gay porn and a dildo in his closet, and she confronted him by slapping him across the head with the dildo. <laughs> well, he, in return, hit her so hard that he broke her jaw. Fuck him. Yeah. And um, she recovered, you know, and she was doing all right. And the next thing I knew, she was bartending at this place on Charter Street. And that's where she met Zach, you know, the Katrina Dream Angel. He was a cook there for a little while. And um, then Katrina happened, and the whole, like, Zach and Addie, Katrina love story happened. And time passed, and I hadn't seen her in a while. And I was kind of like, maybe this is a good thing, you know? Maybe she's doing all right. And, and indeed, she was. And... I ran into her and she uh, came over to my house and this was like the end of September in 2006. So it was like a year, a little over a year past Katrina. And she came over to my house and we just caught up and she told me, you know, we laughed about how they'd become this media sensation, you know, and um, she was beamed with pride and she told me that she was bartending at the Spotted Cat and that she loved it and that she'd met Irma Thomas and that things were going really well and that she was moving from Governor Nichols to this place on Rampart Street and that um, she was going to break up with Zach. She was fixing to break up with Zach because she had caught him getting fucked by a FEMA instructor for crystal meth. Right? And um... I'm like, okay, and she said that she was going to threaten him by saying that she was going to tell his estranged wife and his children that he was this gay-for-pay hustler unless he moved out of the apartment in which they shared the lease. And, uh, you know, at that time, I was just like, this is just another situation. This is another cycle with Addie. 
I didn't know it was going to be the last time I'd see her, but uh, to be honest, every time I saw Addie, I kind of thought it might be the last time I saw her. So a couple weeks passed by, and it was October 16th, and I pick up a copy of the Times-Picayune, and there on the front page, there's Addie and Zach, this picture, that same picture, but this time the headline was very different. Man chops up body and cooks corpse. We'll just let that sink in for a minute. It's taken me 10 years to say that. And it reads, um, the police were called to a suicide site. And when they got there, they found Zach's body. And in his pocket, there was a note. And that note instructed them to go to an apartment on Rampart Street above Priestess Miriam's voodoo shop, where they would find the remains to his girlfriend, Addie Hall. And they also found a journal in this journal, you know, he recorded everything he did on those days, and which included how he calmly strangled my friend to death with his bare hands before he turned the thermostat down to 60 and um, went and hit the town for a week and partied and drank and like spent all his money and he would intermittently come back to the apartment where he would dismember my friend limb by limb he placed her head in a pot on the stove with uh, carrots and potatoes. He placed her limbs and her arms in the oven and her torso in the refrigerator before he instructed the cops to call her, call his estranged wife and to tell them that he was sorry and that he loved them. And then he jumped to his death from the top of the Omni Royal Orleans Hotel. And then, you know, the days and weeks that passed, I'm like mourning this, my friend, and I'm like, and this shit, you know, this is like some crazy, you know, I'm processing this shit. But then she becomes this media sensation again because all those places that reported about them as the Katrina couple now have this wet dream of a follow-up story only a year later and there was these like sensational headlines everywhere about the tragic fucking love story and um, I remember like I wasn't really that shocked and I felt guilty that I wasn't that shocked that this was Addie and I wasn't even surprised but uh, I do remember thinking like Addie's gonna be on a haunted history tour. <laughs> and she would love that. <laughs> and, um, you know, that was 10 years ago. And now, tonight, for, from here forever, you can take that Rampart streetcar past Addie's building, and you can see a guy in a top hat and a cane and a cape, and, and you can watch him tell tourists that, uh, how the Marine became possessed by a demon. You know, he'll tell the story of the tragic New Orleans love story of how this you know, Marine became possessed by a demon that emanated from the voodoo shop downstairs and how he chopped up her body and then cooked it in a cannibalistic voodoo ritual before jumping to his own death. Addie could have writ that shit herself, you know? <laughs> I mean, she's a legend. Now, down at the hallways, these Rampart Street drag queens, they'll come up once in a while and they'll be like, 
Old Dennis, Addie, she still haunts that place. Her spirit is there. And I look at them and I think in my head, of course she does. <laughs> you go, girl. <laughs> it's getting hot in here. So Thank you. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's episode, folks. This is I'm from Barcelona behind me now, and we just heard from Dennis Mon. Thanks again to Sock Club for sponsoring today's episode. Sock Club provides a little gift with a big impact that's sure to make you look like an expert gift giver. Each package includes quality American-made socks, a customizable gift message, and a printable membership certificate so all you last-minute shoppers are covered too. Just for listeners of Risk, Sock Club is offering 50% off subscriptions. Go to SockClub.com and use the code RISK at the checkout. Give Sock Club this holiday season. Now, we have a bunch of fabulous shows coming up. We've got one coming up on Wednesday, December 14th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Listen to this cast. John Early, Jeff Hiller, Janelle James, Jerry Franklin, Tracy Segarra. That's going to be a hell of a show. Come on out, Brooklyn. The Bell House, December 14th. December 15th, we're in Detroit, Michigan. Tell all your friends in Detroit we're coming on December 15th. And on December 16th, we're in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Tell your friends in Milwaukee to come on out December 16th. On December 17th, we're back in Los Angeles. Another amazing cast here. Danny LaBelle, Sean Mason, Matt McCarthy, Matt Drucker, Sarah Benincasa. Now, on January 18th, January 18th, we're in Austin, Texas. We're back in Austin on January 18th. The theme is The Real Deal. On January 19th, Houston, Texas. January 19th is Houston. The theme is Unbelievable. On January 20th, we are back in Dallas. The theme is adventure. Now, everyone in Texas, Austin, Houston, Dallas, pitch us your stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. You could tell a story 
at one of those shows. Come on out, Texas, and let's do this. Finally, on January 27th, we are back in San Francisco. That's going to be a hell of a show. And on February 17th, we're back in Carborough, North Carolina. We're taking pitches for that Carborough show, folks. The theme is what? And you can pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. When you call You guys horny? Uh, no, no, of course not. Then you gotta go.